Medicare for all. Your bros can suck my balls. Fuck your reply, guys. Please don't fuck your reply, guys. Just listen to reply, guys. Hello and welcome back to Reply, guys. I am Kate Willett. The- Oh, shit. We fucked it up again. We've been doing it for so long. Go ahead, Julia. Um, Kate, this is the leftist feminist comedy podcast for the rest of us. My name, and I'm Kate Willett. You, you are know. Kate Willett, yeah. and I'm Julia Clare, and we're back. We're back. We didn't do, we haven't done an intro, like, last week we didn't do one, I think, because you're very busy right now. I know. I'm, I work in uh, the hallowed halls of higher education, and the first... A few weeks are brutal. Um, I the first few weeks of the school year are always tough. (laughs) I I was tweeting about my job, and someone responded saying, "I thought you just made all of your money from Patreon." And I was like, "No." (laughs) Speaking of which, subscribe to our Patreon. Subscribe to our Patreon, please. I we are not even close. I we are not. I mean, Kate and I are. At our core, we're just not problematic enough to get that those big Patreon bucks, I don't think. I keep apologizing to you because for, like, <laughs> not noticing when the Patreon payment hits my bank account. <laughs> that's what uh that's what the patreon payment is after please taxes because i mean not taxes patreon sphere whatever because i'm like it's 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 negligible it's low enough that i'm like oh yeah and we split it just fyi we split it three ways so everyone please if you can throw us a few bucks we make really good content over there we have a deep ass catalog of back episodes too that are amazing but you can even see videos of Little Pearl if you subscribe you see, to Adrian. If you so, you know, if you so desire, which why wouldn't you? Um, Kate, we got to talk about it. This is a a podcast with two leftist women. The leftist feminist comedy fashion podcast for the rest of us. For the rest of us. So, okay, we're of course speaking about AOC's dress. This is pretty, a lot of the discourse around this has been a little dumb, don't you think so? Oh my god, everyone needs, okay, I will say, I did, I see, I saw some people who were like truly melting down about it, and, but then would say, I don't even care about the dress. I'm like, you just devoted 10 tweets to the dress, you care about it, it's just admit it. I mean, I think it's like this thing where, okay, so the dress, in my opinion, it's like a little stunt, you know? I mean, mostly what I care about is, like, what they're doing. I do think, though, that it's it's a bad stunt, in my opinion. Like, I think that it's uh, along the lines, personally, of, like, Nancy Pelosi's uh, ice cream situation. You know, it's a very... <laughs> it's a, getting very, uh, let them oh, eat cake. Oh, no, that's a low blow. Nancy Pelosi's ice cream fridge, no. Well, I mean, it's like, you know, I mean, like, obviously, it's all optics and stuff. And it's like, but th- but that's important. And, like, I think that, you know, it's pretty normal for, like, a, an elected official to be, you know, a- attending things in their, you know their area, cultural institutions or whatever. I mean, it, and it's possibly justifiable or whatever, but I mean, like, the thing is, is like, just in my opinion, just go, just like wear a regular dress, have fun at the event, be like, it's my, it's part of my job to attend this event. 
They, it was it was a big uh, damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. I think if she went and just wore a regular dress, people like would have. I think people still would have ripped her to shreds for a different reason, being like, "Oh, AOC went to rich people prom," which is which is what the Met Gala is, in fairness, and just like wore a designer gown. Like I don't. I really. I think. I think it's fine. I think political stunts. I think when it's something like this, it's like pretty, it's pretty harmless. Uh, and I think that the the outcry over it, at least on Twitter that I saw was outsized to say the least. I just think it wasn't worth that much time in the discourse. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing is, is like, yeah, no, I mean, it's it, to me, like the dress is not the issue. It's mm-hmm. more of like, you know, I mean, newly elected AOC, like, you know, she was doing stunts, too. She was joining the uh, Sunrise protesters and occupying mm-hmm. Nancy Pelosi's office. And, and I we certainly, I don't think, could see that type of stunt from her these days because, you know, she has as a member of Congress. Um had to work within the system, which I don't think is anything specific to her whatsoever. Like, I think that that is what we could expect from any elected official, uh, socialist or not. And Mm -hmm. like, you know, woman or not, whatever. I personally would like to occupy Nancy Pelosi's ice cream fridge. Me too. Occupy Nancy Pelosi's ice cream fridge. But I mean, it's like we were were talking about this on the podcast last week, I think, basically, which is that like, obviously, you know, it's not that Congress is like fundamentally morally corrupting. It's like the pressure to not make waves and make trouble and go against the Democratic Party. That's going to be very, very strong. And of course, they feel that. And of course, and by they, I mean, like the people that have been, you know, sent to office on, um, you know, uh, like small donation campaigns, basically. And it's like a thing where, you know, of course, they're going to feel that pressure. And the only way to, to possibly counteract that is, you know, with pressure from, um, pressure from the people, right? But Mm -hmm. I don't think that, I mean, it, to me, like, the, the dress is just kind of, like, it's just an eye roll to me. Um, mm-hmm. It's not, like, a, it's not a big, big thing. But it's, it's, it is, to me, like, when she doubled down on it and was actually, like, well, actually, you know, people are Googling tax the rich. It's, like, shut up. Honestly, like, this isn't doing anything. Just, no. You know? Well, there was guy, there was that one guy that sincerely tweeted, we do already tax the rich. He was, like, confused by the dress because he was like, they do pay taxes. I mean, that's exactly like, why it wasn't that controversial. You know, like, if she <laughs> said, if she had said, like, you know, <laughs> eat the rich or something, maybe. But, I mean, any any statement on a dress or whatever. But, I mean, like, the dress, the, the, specifically with the message, tax the rich, like, that, I mean, that is a message that, is is pretty easy i think to have around those people because we do already tax the rich just mm-hmm. not enough and just in ways that they're able to get out of right i think i mean well we know what she means by tax the rich obviously but uh but yeah no your point is taken um yeah i just don't i just don't think it was that big of a deal and i do think that people 
I do think people have a hard on for just wanting to rip her to shreds. Yeah, uh, I mean, there definitely are those people. Definitely are those people. But I also think that she's really learned how to exploit that um, for her own sort of like shirking some actual accountability from the people who who sent her to office. And I think she's kind of riding that line with mm. not engaging with what are often very legitimate criticisms of her, you know? Yeah, I don't know if this one falls into that category per se, but it is. Yeah, I don't know. I just don't. I just I my my life is too short. <laughs> we just have we have so many bigger fish uh, to fry here. But <clears throat> um, yeah, I do have. Uh, I do have some good news from good, this, yes. from this week. Um, so in in my hometown of Boston, Massachusetts, yesterday there's a Dunkin' Donuts. There's a Dunkin' Donuts. There is one on every corner in Boston, Massachusetts. <laughs> that is good uh, news. Yes, <laughs> that is good news. And often, and this is 100 percent true, is that often there is a Dunkin' Donuts across the street from another Dunkin' Donuts. Which I love is, it. I, I love it's my favorite thing about going to Boston. Which is perfect. Which is perfect. Yeah. Uh, for all your Dunkin' needs. But what I will say is yesterday was the primary for the mayoral election in Boston. Also a bunch of really important city council races. Boston has been picking up a lot of uh, socialist seats. Uh, a lot of seats going to socialists in the, the city council, in particularly like the Cambridge and Somerville city council. But the furthest left candidate to my knowledge, or one of the furthest left, uh, Michelle Wu, uh, won the Democratic primary for the for the mayoral race. That's and she amazing. Is now, she's now the kind of, she's expected to win. Like, she has a really good chance of winning. And what's cool about her is that she's running on reinstating rent control, uh, fare free, like, eliminating fares from mass transit. That's incredible. And a citywide Green New Deal, uh, and some like more some like wonkier kind of like education reform uh, things that specifically, obviously deal with like increasing educational equity and um, dealing with the the exam schools in Boston, the public schools that are like Boston's elite uh, public schools. Um, which, much like in New York, seem to be from, like, a pretty self-selecting pool of Boston's public school systems. New York, we saw that with their, uh, with, like, Stuyvesant High School, Bronx Science, the, like, elite exam schools in New York City. Um, it's the same thing with, like, Boston Latin in, uh, in Boston. That's Uh, so cool. Does she? I haven't heard her talk yet. Does she have one of those Massachusetts accents that the Boston accents that we love so much, or not really? Not really, because um, she's not old enough to. Yeah, it would be. To me, I'm like I would really like to hear all of these amazing policies detailed in Marty Walsh's voice. I know. <laughs> and the only way that I'm ever going to get that is by asking you very nicely. Yeah. All right. Uh, we're reinstating. Universal rent control. Uh, we're making the tea absolutely free, and uh, you know, we uh, 
uh, instituting a citywide Green New Deal. Go Sox. Wait, Mr. Walsh, um, a quick question uh, for you. I was wondering, um, you know, uh, I, I think that in any just society that everyone should be able to have a donut Mm. for free. Uh, what is your position on this issue? Well, Kate, I'm so glad you asked because I think that that's absolutely correct. Uh, and, you know, once a year we do have, uh, you know, it's free donut day at Dunkin' Donuts and it changes every year and I've asked them to make it a recurring holiday so I can put it on my calendar appropriately. Uh, but you're absolutely right and uh, my office is looking into it. Thank you so much, Mr. Walsh. I really appreciate that. <laughs> Uh, if you could put in a good word for me for sprinkles, you know, as a constituent. Um, all right, folks, we have a really, really wonderful episode today. Um, I got to interview such a really, truly smart, interesting person this week, Olaimi Olaren, and she is a public defender in Queens, and um, she is, you know, she's working on the front lines of... Um, reducing incarceration and just really, really smart, thoughtful person about uh, some ways that we can change the criminal justice system right now, as well as long term. Um, and it was just it was such a good conversation. Uh, she is a very, very awesome leftist woman. And I think that you will enjoy this one. Bye. Hello and welcome back to Reply Guys. I am here speaking with Olaimi Olerin and she is a public defender that I met a couple weeks ago when we recorded an episode of Bad Faith about dating. I'm so glad that you can make it on the show, Olaimi. Good. I'm excited to be here and talk about serious things. <laughs> serious? Well, this is a comedy podcast, so we'll talk well, about even serious better, things too. Yeah. Like Thank you. <laughs> um, okay, so... I think, you know, a lot of people have like a vague concept of what a public defender does, but maybe it's like pretty general or maybe it's like a little bit, you know, sort of like erroneous from like TV representations yeah. or whatever. Like what is what people think a public defender does versus what a public defender actually does? I think people think public defenders do what we do. They just think we do it badly. It's just the uh, it's just the perception of us as being real lazy and sloppy about it. But we represent everybody's entitled to legal representation. So anybody who's poor gets appointed a court appointed attorney. That would be me. Um, and so basically, but most people in the criminal system are poor. So we represent most people in the system. So in Queens, what it is is once you get arrested. Um, me or one of my colleagues shows up and we deal with your entire criminal case, trying to get you out of jail from arraignments to the end of the case, whether that be trial or plea or what have you. How does someone land on this path? How do you land on the path? In your yeah. city, you're probably poor, black or brown um, and NYPD is around. So they get you and they put you on the path. Oh, but I meant of being a public defender. Oh, being a public defender? I thought you meant uh, getting arrested. I was like, let me tell you how to police. <laughs> uh, no, I, I, unfortunately, I know something about how people get arrested, but okay. how do people become a public defender? For me, well, I knew I wanted to be a lawyer. I moved to America to be a lawyer, actually, in high school. I convinced my parents to let me move to the States because I looked into the immigration. I was like, it'll be easier if I come earlier. So I always knew I wanted to be a lawyer. But as far as being a PD in college, I was always doing my, like, you know, my thesis and everything on, you know, Black people, people of color, right, to the criminal system. And I remember I had this thesis advisor when I was writing it, and she called me a gap scholar. 
which is, you know, some, which is not an insult. It's someone in academia that points out the problems and what are issues, but they don't necessarily offer any solutions or do anything about it. And I remember during the Ferguson protest, I was like, oh, that feels woefully insufficient. I don't think in um, a criminal system where Black people are disproportionately, you know, profiled and incarcerated is sufficient enough for me as an attorney when there are less than 5% of attorneys are Black to go into the profession and not do something that helps Black people. So specifically, that's why I was like, all right, from here on, that's what we got to do. Is being a public defender, like uh, what I'm imagining it's like, is that you have just like an insane caseload, just like so, so, so many cases. Well, underneath the computer right now, this is Oh my God. Okay. So this is, um, this is not a visual medium, but I am, I'm going to describe for the listeners what I'm looking at. I'm looking at basically the biggest stack of paper that I've ever seen. And Olayami was clearly struggling to, to lift it despite (laughs) being That is probably one of six stacks. (laughs) Oh my God. So I have one underneath the laptop, a stack like that underneath the coffee table, another stack by my office about at my home office and then in my real office i have a billion of those oh my god so th- this is like i mean is this the kind of job where you're just pretty much constantly working yeah i think you know you can determine you know there's some flexibility i want to say well i'm in a union so that gives me flexibility that's that's my flexibility fuck yeah unions yes. yeah <laughs> um but yeah, in some ways, yes, my phone is always ringing. I think the most stressful part of the job that makes you feel like you're always working is the fact that everybody has these cases. Like, these are the biggest things that happen in their life. All of these people, for every file, somebody's freaking out. They want to, you know, stay out of jail. They're worried about a million collateral consequences. And they are all calling me. Like, I wake up and my phone is immediately ringing. And I'm like, Jesus, why me? Why? Like, what, what are the questions? What are the answers? So it feels stressful for that. But you know, you have your time. I work on the weekends, but they pay me more for that. So that's a choice. Damn, that sounds like, I mean, how many cases would you typically be responsible for, like, at any given time? Probably a hundred and something. That's so much. And like, so, you know, like the representation of what criminal law is like on TV is like, you know, a lot of trials. And I think most yeah. people are aware that like, that's like not usually happening. Like what, what is usually uh, the progression of a criminal law case? I think the criminal, the criminal system on TV is totally uh, not how it goes at all. Like you'll watch an episode and someone's arrested and they're in trial by the end of the episode, like by the day that most things are going to plead out period. Like most things will never see the light of trial. Um, but then on top of that, even if you're going to get a trial, it's going to be a long time. People sit in Rikers, for years before they get a trial, you know, it's years of cases being open, or sometimes they know a case is supposed to be dismissed and they still won't do it. So what typically is, is you have a case and it's just going to languish open for a while. So you have, I want to say clients, but I guess it's not really the, what, like, what would you, what would the word be for like, someone well, I call them representing? you call them clients. I call okay. them my clients. I would, you know, the other words, what, you know, Language is important, you know, criminal defendant and those type of words are intentional to make people, you know, see them as bad or to yeah, yeah. people, you know? Yeah, so you usually know who's not gonna be a public defender for a long time if they get in court and they refer to their client as a defendant. Like, oh, all right, damn. this is gonna be a crossover. Oh, <laughs> damn. Yeah, so, okay, so you're working with people that are uh, in places like Rikers who have not, had any kind of trial yet like they're, they're not convicted of any crime but they're exactly. just hanging out in, in jail you know maybe being um exposed to to covid uh almost certainly um mm-hmm. i mean like 
for people who are public defenders and um, other advocates of, I don't want to say criminal justice reform because what a lot of people want is is way beyond that. Like, yeah, how like for someone in your position, like how are people working to like get people out of jail faster, particularly people who haven't even been convicted? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I always think it's interesting at Rikers is like infamous, like infamous for being this terrible place. And it's like, yeah, no one at Rikers is convicted. These are all regular New Yorkers, regular everyday people that have just been accused of something, usually small, minor things, and they're stuck there. Um, for me, when the pandemic first started, that was really stressful because I only had a couple of clients in. But what happened was instead of you would think that because there's this pandemic that would make these like make them less likely to put people in right for foolishness like let them out it's nonsense but what happened was I, I had a guy I remember he was in on something insignificant like a misdemeanor from like years before that he already like pled out and I think he was supposed to do some like community service or something he couldn't do it he didn't have the money because this is the thing those things cost money your clients are poor like they're very poor because I consider myself like president of broke and I wouldn't qualify for my services. So understand that people of public defenders, which is the majority of the system, are like dirt poor, like zero dollars coming in. And then they required him to do this like paid for class. He couldn't pay for it. So they lock him up like at the beginning of the pandemic. So I'm like, I go to the judge and do an emergency, you know, hearing. I'm like, let him out. He's going to do this. You know, I've talked to his mother. They've found the money to pay for the course. And the judge was like, well, because of the pandemic, we don't think he'll be able to do the community service classes because they're not available. So we're just going to keep him in Rikers when he has asthma in a pandemic and crowded cells. So it becomes, it did become this like really, really stressful thing of like a lot of attorneys had to do, we did like emergency files, everybody's signing on to it about the conditions of COVID. So that's what it really became about this larger, we had to, as an organization, attack it from that to get anybody out. There's a few things that really struck me um, when what you were just saying. One, I don't think that I had really comprehended that nobody in Rikers has been convicted of a crime. Like no one, like it's all people who haven't been convicted of shit. And that's just, I mean, that's mind blowing too. It's just like, I mean, it is so dispiriting and terrible that, you know, we're in a time right now where people with COVID, like the client you're just talking about could potentially be receiving a death sentence without ever being, convicted of a crime not that it would be good in, yeah. in any case but oh man it's just um but that's so- the thing. it matters in terms of that people know they're not convicted because people have this attitude that if somebody has a criminal record if they did something bad or they're in the system they're bad or wrong they're wrong or something and it doesn't matter what happens to them people have this real laissez-faire attitude when it comes to people's rights and their dignity if they think that they did anything and so yeah. it's important to remember like nobody these people they're just accused of something in most cases i have are stupid let's i want to be clear like people think it's like murder and violent crime it's like i cursed out my roommate me and my mama had a fight you know uh like i have a woman i represent you can get cursing cursing out your roommate can get you going to rikers all day every day all day every day it is a popular popular one in new york especially in a place like new york city where everybody has roommates they're random people and you're getting into it with them. You know, I have so many cases, just just people getting into arguments. With like, them. and it's like, a, a, a physical altercation or. Even if it's not physical, just you like, if you piss me off right now, Kate, and I curse you out, let's say you make me mad when I get off this and I start talking like, girl, F you, blah, 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 blah. If you call NYPD and be like, she is 
um, cursing me out, she's stressing me out, they will harass my ass, charge me with aggravated harassment in the third, and the allegations will be that I was texting you, cursing you out. That's illegal? Yeah. Ain't that I mean, something? Everything would be illegal in America if they wanted to be. Yeah, I'm telling you, I had a roommate call the police on me actually in law school. And you know what's funny? I couldn't stand her. I, I, I never spoke to her um, no more. But even now, looking back at it, as now that I'm an attorney and I recognize exactly what would have happened had it gone the way she wanted it. I'm like, I wish I could go back in time and beat her ass just so it'd be worth it. Because it was like, if you it'll happen. You call somebody or whatever, they call the police and they come and take you out. And it's worse in New York. It's not just that you get a criminal charge. If you and your roommate get into it and they call the police, let's pretend you're not a white woman, Kate. Um, and let's pretend you look like me. You curse out your roommate. They go to the house. They go to pick you up. They go to arrest you. They're not only going to charge you, they're going to issue an order of protection automatically, whether or not your roommate wants it, against you in favor of her making you homeless. You can't go back to that house. Like, you can't go back to that apartment. Yeah. So, you, so it's an immediate eviction. Automatic. Yeah. In Damn. every case in New York City, if anybody makes an allegation against you in New York City about anything they automatically issue an order of protection against you that renders most of our clients homeless because most issues you have are with the people you live with or your family or your friends and so that's what they do parents will call the police because you know they think scared straight come talk to my child you know what i mean and what the police do is they come there they lock up their child against the people's will and now you have mothers and fathers begging for their child to come back home now they've issued an order of protection against some 14 year old 15 year old child that has nowhere to go and now they can't get home and even if their parents want them there the police will come by do a check and see that they're there and arrest them for criminal contempt you know i think a lot of white people especially people who may have grown up in like suburbs like just their experience yeah, with the police just does not like give them any insight into um like just the fact that like you know these situations like you're talking about like you can end up in fucking rikers for exactly. cursing out your roommate i mean and i'll be honest with you that's even shocking to me i didn't know that cursing out your roommate was, was a crime oh know? yeah my white clients are always outraged trust me outraged there is no outrage like a white person that's been arrested and like has a case like they will call you every single day just to say someone can really lie on me and i have them like yeah, yeah, yeah that's how it goes like in disbelief all my white clients are always like that outraged they can't i had a white and i loved him in his in his defense this is no slander against him i really felt him he was really in a bind but he he called me one day and he's like can you please explain to the judge how terribly inconvenient this all is I was oh like, my god that's so funny I was like, yeah, baby, it was, it's meant to be that way. It's not an accident. Like, they know, they know. I, like, your, your white clients, and this is a popular white client um, position, your white client always wants to press charges on whoever got them arrested. They're very upset. They're like, actually, I have been, I'm like, oh, no, no, no. I, I know you can't feel it, but you're the defendant here. They're against you. I know you're not accustomed to it, but like these people around here, they don't like you. It's just me. They don't, they don't care. Yeah, and you know, in fairness, in fairness to them, listen, if you have, if you've always known police, you grew up in a society where police are, uh, they seem inevitable. They seem necessary. You're treated like, you know, sky blue, grass green, water wet. Police are here. That's how people feel. And you only ever have these kind of interactions with them where you can explain yourself. They're reasonable. They're helpful. They point you in the direction. I once was at a train station with one of my white friends and he jumped a turnstile in front of, the, in front of NYPD. I was like, well, you're really, really doing what you want. If you have those experiences, if you have never seen it from, you know, black people and people of color's perspective, you're, you're probably less likely to believe it. You know what I mean? Like Dave Chappelle has, I think, um, 
a joke in Killing Him Softly where he talks about how white people didn't believe us, you know, until until Newsweek or something published it that, uh, that the police were beating up black people and sprinkling crack on them. And yeah, and they didn't believe it till, till you hear it from some other place. And I think that's what it is. They think you're not complying. You're fighting with them. Like, surely you just explained yourself. You just explained yourself at a workout. And it's not the case. I, one thing that you mentioned when we were on Bad Faith a, a couple weeks ago was uh, you, you said this offhandedly, but I, I wanted to ask you about it. You're like, I do not believe in progressive prosecutors. And I was wondering if oh. you could elaborate on that, because the idea has really taken hold on the left. Yeah. You know what? Listen, I better than nothing. I won't won't say like they, there are prosecutors that are better than others. Yes, that's true. But as far as the like uh, people have this mindset is like, Prosecution, regardless of what the spectrum is of how progressive they are or not, they're in the business of incarceration. That's what they do. You know what I mean? It doesn't matter. You know, this one might be a little bit more lenient than the other or this one has certain talking points, but they're still jailing people. That's still the point. They're still going to arrest people. They're still putting you through the system. All of the ways in which a regular prosecutor is still invested in the criminal system. So is a progressive prosecutor. And often they really do tend to be just empty talking points. There are some some that are better than others around the country, but like the DA in the borough I practice is a Democrat and alleged, you know, um, progressive prosecutor or whatever. No, she's not. She doesn't authorize them to make pleas on all kind of minor misdemeanors. I had um, in January represented a man that was uh, Sakala Arnold that had been kneeled on by a police in the 113th precinct. And I think that was the first case since New York City passed the uh, bail, uh, they passed the laws last summer in order to say, you know, kneeling on people would be illegal and certain police misconduct would be illegal. This wouldn't happen anymore um, following the George Floyd killing. So here comes my client, NYPD, kneels on his neck. It's on video. People are screaming around, outrage. We call for them to charge the officer. She wouldn't charge the officer. She said, I support the spirit of the legislation, but in other words, they like the, they like the talking point. She promised when she ran for the position, it's okay, I'm going to be progressive. I'm going to hold police accountable. But at the end of the day, they work with the police. I think yeah. people try to distance prosecutors and judges from police. The narrative is just like police are bad and the criminal system is just like it just happens there. No, that's who they work with. That's their sole witness for the cases. That's who's bringing the criminal complaints. They're not going to do it. So progressive prosecutors just be talking nicer than the regular prosecutors. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like it's impossible for them to, to do their job if like the cops turn against them. So they have to kind of exactly. keep that channel open and working smoothly. Um, exactly. Yeah. Those are you make some really good points. So. All right. I mean, you know, given that uh, this progressive prosecutor idea is uh, not really sounding like it's going to pay off in the way that yeah. like probably a, a lot of very well-intentioned advocates of this idea are going to hope like what are some like immediate uh what are some like immediate steps like things that we could potentially see like in in the next few years here that like could potentially <laughs> you know lower the amount of incarceration well so there uns okay on 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 let me go from the level of the criminal system then like immediately to what's happening in courts. Um, a lot of, first of all, I think we need to decriminalize like a lot of a lot of laws that are the books just don't need to be criminalized. A lot of criminal cases that we have, like criminal mischief, a lot of these misdemeanors, these cases that you know are gonna be dismissed. Criminal mischief. Okay, I gotta stop you there. I to me, okay, I, I need you to explain what this is because I'm sure that it's something like 
you know, that's really unfair that is used to unjustly deal <laughs> people. But I am just imagining like the Lucky Charms guy just running around <laughs> stealing people's Lucky Charms or something, you know, mischief. No, criminal mischief in court. What it really tends to be tantamount to, okay, like a criminal, the criminal mischief case, case I have right now off the top of the dome that I have is um, this guy got home late and he was uh, um, banging on his door, his apartment door, because his baby mama locked him out. Um, and he could like she she had fallen asleep, so he's banging on the door. So the neighbor calls the police um, and says he's banging on the door, making noise. And the police arrest him and say, "You're not the legal custodian of this door, like the building. You don't own it. You know what I mean?" So by they said you're banging on the door, that's a dent. That's to this door that you don't own. And that's what they they were charged him with criminal mischief. So this is really kind of like a catch-all charge, just for it's whatever just they want to do. Stuff. Like it's just petty things. Anything can. If you have broad language in a statute, you can make it fit. Like, it's just petty things. Like, you have cases like, I had a, a client last year, man, like 50-something, been married like 40, 40 years um, to his wife, no issues between them. He got mad and threw uh, glasses, like, not at her, like his glasses in the, like, corner of the room. And they, they arrest him for attempted assault. Damn. You know what I mean? They're like, the gla- his glasses that he threw in the thing, that's, that's a weapon now, you know? I mean, how sexy are the glasses, you know? <laughs> Listen. What kind of weapon? Um, no, I, I hear they you. They call it that. Yeah. yeah, it's just it's just about, it's just regular. That's the thing I try to tell people. Criminal activity, like what they charge as criminal as crime here, just regular activity that if you want to make it all of that, then I guess, but it's not it's not really that. They, they tend to just be like minor, minor issues or, you know, you got into it with somebody. I have a client who's, and this sweet lady, I Lord, she was balling. She was mad at her neighbor and he had an inflatable pool, you know, the kids inflatable pool outside. And they accused her of stomping on on the pool, like stomping on it or whatever. So they arrest this woman. They they hauled her into jail. um, And she's like there balling has a case trying to set an order against her. What? What? Like, and that's the thing. People will ask you, well, how do you represent? You know, what if you know your client is guilty? I'm like. Often, I think my clients did the thing that they're accused of. The thing shouldn't be criminalized. They shouldn't be here. Like, why, why are we here? So, yeah, they did it. But So taking, taking things off the books, like dumb, dumb laws, um, obviously. Yeah, it's a crime a lot, to prosecute nonsense. Yeah, uh, uh, obviously, like in the past few years, people have been talking about, like, um, decriminalizing weed, which makes, I mean, makes sense. I saw... Um, a couple of years ago, maybe now in the New York Times, uh, they looked at every arrest for marijuana and there was not one white person, not one. I represented uh, a guy once with, with weed. It was a black, I represented a black guy that was found, they accused him of having a blunt and I represented a white guy immediately after him, like in the same shift, same judge, same prosecutor. Like um, the black guy was accused of having the one blunt, the white guy was had was found like a bag of drugs, which, you know, if he were somebody else, he would have been charged with intent to sell. Like he would have been a drug dealer, right? That's what, you know, they would have said. They asked for, I remember, at least $1,500 uh, bail on the black guy for the blunt that they know would eventually be dismissed. In the same New York City, that because New York City has been claiming they they don't prosecute, like weeds decriminalized here even before it became legal this year. But they've been claiming they don't prosecute it, which is a lie. But then immediately after the white guy, they just, the, the people don't ask for bail. They're like, we consent to his release. Consent is really, so they just get rid of their cases. When I have a white client, I rarely have to even listen to the details because I know the case is going away. And so, you know, I think like 
hopefully most people are going to recognize the types of situations that you, you just describe as racism. But what I'm curious about is like, how does it work more specifically? Like, what are the kind of like, let me see, how do I phrase this? So like, is it, is it the kind of bias of uh, the judges or like, is, what are the factors that actually lead to, to this like racist sentencing? So, so I think um, the system comes off, people think it's a lot more insidious than it is, right? Like you think it's like something that's happening behind, behind the books or something you got to like parse out. It's like, it's like pretty blatant, right? Like you, most of what happens in the criminal court on a day-to-day basis isn't like we're filing motions and we're going to trial and we're doing that. These are just regular people, you know, talking and determining like what they think, right? Like you're arguing with some prosecutor, um, you're telling them this, you're telling them that. Usually they just come out and you have your, you have your black client, they think they're, they think they're a bad guy and they won't make an offer, you know what I mean? Because that's the client. You have a white client and they just let it dismiss, you know, or they don't, or it's how the judge talks to your client. Like I had a white guy once that I think was accused of some, it wasn't like sexual assault. It was, um, it was like, a, he was, he had mental, he had mental health problems, but he, he, uh, I think he, um, like he showed himself to somebody on the street or something like that. Um, but the judge let him talk, like your clients, if your client and my black client, my person of color goes to like talk for themselves, advocate for themselves, the judge and them are immediately like, shh, but they're like, oh, let him talk. And they let my white guy just like ex- talk to talk for them. You know what I mean? Explain himself why he should get an offer. You know what I mean? Why he should get something. And they were like, all right, time served. That's the difference. They'll, they'll let them talk. You know what I mean? They'll explain themselves or the prosecutor is interested in what the parties want when it's, when it's white clients, like you're, they'll, they'll, they'll reach out to you and let you know, Hey, we'll drop the order. We talked to, you know what I mean? Like their family or they just believe it more, you know, they're, they're willing to negotiate on cases where they otherwise wouldn't. So it isn't so, um, it's not something you really have to parse out. It, It impacts exactly how they talk about into your client and what they're willing to like offer and what they'll even say about the clients. Judges, like talk on the record, talk bad to your clients. Like in front of you, they tell you what they think of them. And you watch the difference between how they deal with your clients based on what their race is. What is their this? Whether or not they give them a last name, like your client, they acknowledge them. They call them Mr. So-and-so. They're more prepared to listen to your narrative. Like this is a good guy, let him out. So it really just comes down to that. It's it's not, it's really no less um, discreet than when you're dealing with people in real life and you know that they're offering, you know what I mean? How they feel about certain people, your friends. It's those same people. And in my case, it is those same people. I went to law school in Queens. A lot of my classmates are the DAs that I'm going against. Like my law school roommate is a Queens prosecutor. So, you, but in those types of situations are you just like thinking like, fuck you, John, or whatever. <laughs> you know, funny enough, a lot of my classmates, I think they just, they know how I go and they don't want to, they don't want to deal with me. They, they don't give me as much grief. Like my class, my roommate, um, my uh, law school roommate does it. She don't be interested in in dealing with me in court. She's like, all right, what do you want? What do you want? Let's do that. Like we're pretty. She keeps it copacetic. Like we be we be good. Because I think a lot of a lot of the job comes down to forgive me. Like people, they don't want to hear this, but like a lot of the job comes down to like how soft you are, what you're willing to say, or you know what I mean. It's it's a personal thing. I think outside of like having to go to trial and like writing motions and stuff like that, which is just not the majority of the job. It's personalities. You know what I mean? Arguing, talking, who's willing to back down, what you feel like dealing with this and the next thing. So if a prosecutor knows, like that's not somebody who's scared of going to trial, they know that somebody will get in the court and make a record who's going to push back. They know how you feel. They're not, they're not dealing with you. So a lot of times my roommate is just like, yeah, yeah. 
you want this let's go let's be let's be done so other than um getting rid of like all of these kind of dumb bs chargers uh what are some of the what are some of the other things that we could do like in the immediate future to reduce in the immediate future getting rid of these charges declining to prosecute um i think a lot of these special court parts for like drugs and mental health and all these resources they claim to offer at the threat of criminal prosecution just offer that for for the jump like offer it without the threat of criminal prosecution get rid of the case yeah um i think the cases where they they offer ACDs, um, and ACD is an adjournment and contemplation of dismissal. What that means in New York City is very popular. It means the court agrees that they'll automatically dismiss and seal your case on like it's either six months or a year, right? If it's if it's a non-domestic violence thing, it's six months. If it's domestic violence, it's a year. So they 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 know that they're never prosecuting this case. They which is because they know they don't really have a case. This is a case we put a trial with. So what they do instead of just dismissing cases. They offer ACDs, so then people have an open criminal case for six months or a year, right? So and so that affects their job employment, their home, their this, their blah, blah, blah. Any case where you feel like you want to offer an ACD or disc on something stupid like that, get rid of it. You know, they don't like to dismiss cases at arraignments. They'll know they have to dismiss it and refuse to do it and put on these court dates. They should get rid of those. They can, the police be in line all up and down the subway and in Black neighborhoods and stuff where they just especially the NYCHA housing, like where they just are allowed to stand outside of NYCHA homes and just round people up, all that's got to go. Um, so those are my, off my top of my dome. One thing that I was thinking of, um, hold on, I'm going to grab my charger really quick. Um, one thing that I was thinking of when you were talking about that, like the police just standing outside of NYCHA homes, um, you know, since Eric Adams was elected, uh mayor of new york city and you know he obviously ran on a very pro cop platform there's been this yeah then there's there's been this narrative um that i'm going to simplify but it actually really is like this dumb what people are saying like see Mm -hmm. this proves that black people actually uh love cops like in these areas what is the rebuttal to that it doesn't prove that uh black people love cops it, it proves that you know i'm actually writing a thing on this right now if you want to hear my honest what it is you know america claims to be really outraged by the criminal system right like it explain you know oh this is so bad the criminal system is unjust like if you went to any protest last year you probably heard the version of you know the system isn't working um it's not broken it's working exactly as it's intended a million times right yeah you've heard that that used to be like this really like uh, damning re- revelation, but now that's like popular opinion. You see that all over the place, and everything that's bad about the criminal system—bail, bail, bail uh, pleas—all of these things—it's well known, but yet it continues to happen, and the system continues to expand in the wake of that. And that's because everybody is just as invested in all of the things that make mass incarceration happen, you know, while claiming to have this kind of talking point, you know. And that's the thing about a place like New York City. I think is a perfect example of that. New York City is so democratic and progressive and blue all of our prosecutors all these prosecutors are democrats you know what i mean yeah all of these things that happened bail reform and bail rollback happened under a democrat you know they had like last year there was a a protest in every single borough in new york city every single day from like may onwards protests in the criminal system and police brutality and new york city turned around and in december voted for a cop and you know why because 
people like the fluff. Like, and that's just the truth. Lib- like liberals and Democrats or whatever, you like this certain, like, okay, let me be progressive and da 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 da. And having a black cop allows you to, to say that. Like, here's this black man, it's a black man, so it's progressive. It's like diversity. Let me take this black face and slap it onto the cover of the same kind of like white institutions. And that's really what it is. It's not about whether or not black people prefer cops or are fine with that. It's the fact that the entire society like society is in some way invested in the idea that we need this criminal system, we need this, we need that. And it creates the look, it's the vibes they wanted. You know what I mean? Like you get your same status quo of the criminal system that you believe in, that you're invested in, you know, while saying, hey, we're progressive, we, we elected this black guy. That's what, it, that's what it boils down to. It's got nothing to do with black people and everything to do with white liberal America. Yeah, and well, I mean, just to expand on that, the the like, so I I feel like I've observed the uh, the white liberal talking points around this really change and go through this like trajectory in the past year, like you know maybe last June, um, you had a lot of people that were starting to say things like defund this defund the police, mm-hmm. and now like a, a lot of those people have backtracked and they're mm-hmm. like well you know uh don't all communities have the right to to police protection like you know if we if we want like certain areas to be you know less police than they are like don't those people like deserve to be safe and it's like actually like um it's a <laughs> it's a woke argument for over policing you know yeah um, it's it is, and it's not even woke it's stupid it's one of those things people always um, are talking about. You know what annoys me? And let's just be honest. I'd be tired of hearing white people talk about um, where police should be and how much police we need because you're not dealing with the police. You're yeah. not seeing the police. They're not in your neighborhoods. When I go to my white friend's neighborhood, you go somewhere or whatever, I don't see NYPD. But if I turn on my corner right now, they have, they're have they stationed on the corner. You go to the train stations, they're yeah. there. It's like, who are you to say the communities that are over police don't want them there? Like black people historically don't care for the police and everybody else. Like, let's not act like this is something we need to parse through statistics or hear these talking points for. You know what it is. Police don't keep black people safe. Even if you believe that we live in, even if I conceded that we lived in communities that aren't safe or something like that, police do not keep us safe. They're not getting us any safer. The presence of police has not made us any safer. What they have done is exacerbated the social uh, um, um, economic inequalities that we have. They've exacerbated what the role of the criminal system is um, in our life, both socially and legally. They do that. They might be a danger to us. They might arrest people after crime has already happened, but they don't do nothing to keep us safe. In fact, I don't know a black person that is not frightened by the presence of the police. I have a pretty, uh, I'm not from, I'm from, uh, I went to boarding school. I come from a great socioeconomic background. I blah, 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 blah. If I see the police, I'm like, all right. You know what I mean? My nerves on me all the same. If my friend, like, because that's what it is. You know what I mean? That's just, that's just the truth. So it's got nothing to do with safety. It has everything to do with white people feeling like they feel safer to have our communities line with police when we're a jail man they remember this that's this that's all it is and i don't have time to waste on their little you know oh you know are these people i've had that i, I went out with a white guy once um in my one year law school on our third date and last date um we went to watch get out which i should have known that was the end of the relationship the minute that we went to go see this film but he goes he tells me you know um to me and my black face he was like, I lived in um, the hood. I don't I don't know what the hood constituted. It probably I don't know. He where is that on the map? In. Yeah. Right. Where, where, right. Yeah. And he was like, and the black people, you know, and the black people love the police. They want the police there. And I'm like. 
That what what? That's not even true anywhere in the world. That's not even. It's not even just not true in America. It's not true nowhere. It's not true in the Bahamas. It's not true in Africa. Black people like please. So you just you can't pay them no mind, Kate. Don't 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 humor them. <laughs> no, I I mean it's just it is. <sighs> It's really insidious to just see like, you know, just all of the really sort of like strategic work that's being done by the media to, you know, just really kind of like erase all of the, um, I want to say like intellectual progress or something like the, yeah. the, the different, the, like people who um, started to see the police as, as the the dangers that they are, and I'm talking about like white liberals who were not previously aware mm-hmm. of that, you know. Yeah, um, they're like less less fry in the moment. Yeah, um, you know, to re, rebrand, like reinvigorize. Uh, yeah, uh, it's like a yeah. hundred hundred things throwing at it. Like, by the way, murders are up, and um, shoplifting is up, and, and like, none of that the cops aren't going to do their job. And none, yeah. and none of that shit is true. And also. NYPD has run free rampant with that nonsense that like, oh, we had a crime spike and it's because the police have been defunded. First of all, the police, NYPD was never defunded. In fact, the NYPD, who has an $11 billion budget already, and there are 36,000 NYPD officers, got a $200 million rise. And crime did not spike. It never spiked. You know what I mean? That That didn't happen. But even if it did, then how it, why is it spiked in the wake of your 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 money increase? All this money, all this money you put into policing. Why is crime not going down? Then, if that's the case, I yeah, it's uh, man, it's it's pretty frustrating. Please I want to um, I want to make sure that we get into uh, please y'all. So you know, like I mean, this is something that like I think a concept that people have some level of familiarity from with i mean uh but you were talking about like your clients being offered these deals as being like a good thing and like i have always been like pretty worried that like this is actually a way of like getting people who are actually innocent in jail um Mm -hmm. i don't know what what are your thoughts on on uh offering pleas yeah people take pleas well, yeah, people take pleas uh, all the time, right? Because they don't want to take their risks at trial. Um, and I think obviously that leads to some innocent people um, doing things. But, you know, I, I've never been big on framing the system as um, I don't look at, I guess I don't, I don't look at the job and my clients and what's done based on who's innocent and who's guilty. Because it, to me, it isn't, um, it's not a framework that exists in the real, in the, in terms of the real work, right? Because most of the criminal system isn't about the vast majority of it, of it isn't about like cases where they're accused of anything particularly bad or something that you couldn't see or they're not circumstantial or anything like that. It's less to me about the fact that innocent people are sitting in prison as opposed to anybody being yeah. there. You know what I mean? It's it's because um, even if they did do it right, like let's pretend like you got in like I have a client. They, they committed this assault. Right. They beat up somebody. Um, so they beat up somebody. They got into a fight. Right. A fight has happened and it's done. Their lives have continued. Why now does this person have to have a criminal record that's going to impact the rest of their life? Why do they need to go to jail for a year? You know what I mean? Why do they have to do these things regardless? So I guess for me, it, it doesn't really matter the uh, the innocence or guilt thing. I don't really think about it so much. But yeah, the people take pleas. They're they're forced to take pleas all day, every day, just because it's going to be so much 
people, every individual client has a different life circumstance, a different collateral consequences, consequences being impacted in a different way. Like I have a client where I could have gotten him, we could have resolved his case a lot earlier, but he's in the military and they don't want to see anything at all, any kind of plea, even if it wouldn't give him a criminal record, they don't want anything. So then he has to have this open, right? Or you have a client who, like if a person will get a DUI, like say you get a DUI um, and they offer you the infraction version of the DUI, right? You don't have to get a criminal record. You would take the infraction version of the DUI, do the programs and you would be done, right? And that's no problem. That's a great deal for you as an, as, as an American citizen. An immigrant takes that exact same infraction and that's messed up their immigration consequences. The fact that a DUI has, you know, entirely different collateral consequences, even if it's an infraction. And, you know, people take conditional pleas, right? Like I'll agree to take this plea and if I do this community service, you'll vacate it. Immigration doesn't acknowledge vacatures. So your client takes this, you know, if you have a an attorney that doesn't understand your immigration consequences, your client takes this thinking they've got an amazing plea and now they're deportable. You know what I mean? Or they, yeah. they're inadmissible now. So it really boils down to the individual client collateral consequences and how they're pressured based on all these different things. Like it's not even just, oh, that they think they'll lose a trial. It's they have some other consequence that'll be messed up if they don't do this right then or they don't do this specific language or you know and and it's about having a way to odds on that on every single case uh yeah that that makes sense um i um yeah i when you were talking i was i was thinking a lot about what you were saying about like not thinking of people as innocent or guilty and i guess it's you know it, it is very true that like if if i think about just like sort of reflexively think about someone who is in jail like i'm just i'm imagining a murderer you know exactly that's what um, people do yeah but i mean that's like a really small small percentage it's of very small and people don't recognize violence between violent and non-violent offenders it's a legal definition it's not it doesn't mean that the offense was actually violent that anybody was harmed or anything like that you know it just that's just the legal classification of it most quote-unquote violent and that's why i don't like when you know democrats and liberals and people that claim to be so progressive do that they're like oh we should get rid of the non-violent offenders you know violent quote-unquote violent offenders just because someone has that legal term doesn't mean they actually harm the soul you know yeah. what i mean if you yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that, that anybody was harmed at all. If somebody commits, if somebody comes and breaks into my apartment and I'm not here and me and my cat are somewhere running down the street, they come here and they take the things or whatever, they can still be like, oh, this is a burglary. So this is a this is a kind of offense. This is this. And they could still be considered a violent offender, even though no one was armed, nobody was there. And they do that every day. So I think it's important for people to you know recognize a lot of these legal uh, these things you think of like violent and nonviolent and um, innocent and guilty have a very different nuanced reality in the system. You know, it doesn't mean that these people are actually violent. Most of my clients, they like even my clients that I have that have serious like serious charges or they're in jail right now in Rikers and they're looking at tens of years. I have a, I have a man who was looking at was facing like 25 years in jail if he went to trial and he didn't touch a hair on a single person's hair. You know what I mean? They like. But he would have considered been considered a violent offender. You know what, they, they what was he accused of? Are you able to uh, say burglary, like breaking uh, breaking in somewhere? Damn. Um, um, and he didn't even take it. Didn't even actually end up uh, um, taking anything. But they're like, oh, you 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 broke in somewhere. You had a gun, or someone said saying you're having a gun. So violent offense, even though no one's armed. You know, people people go to jail for stuff like that all the time in, in America. There are people in California sitting in jail because they stole DVDs for the rest of their life. This is a three strikes law that made it this way. And, you know, there's lots of that. So, yeah. 
okay so coming toward the end of our time um you know if there's anything that you feel like like what's the thing i guess that you most wish that people understood about the criminal justice system that you feel like is is commonly misunderstood i think the thing that uh i think the underlying framework that fuels our criminal system and mass incarceration is how people look at each other and people that are accused of crime. I think people, if people change this idea that like anybody who's in the criminal system or any, anybody who's accused of doing something or anybody who did do something is a bad, irredeemable person that needs to be locked away, that would change it. Because I think when I, whenever I tell people, you know, I don't want people to be imprisoned or I, you know, you know, you need to address the root causes of things. People have this mentality of like, they think to help the victim or to, to help these people, uh, whoever they believe are harmed or something, you need to go be as punitive as possible, right? I need to punish this person. But if you look at it like, all right, this is the society I live in, right? There are problems that exist and I want them to get better. I want these things to be done better. If there are people that are committing crime that is and usually crime is built out of poverty, mental illness, all these different things. If I actually address these things, instead of being concerned with punishing this person because this bad or thing has happened or this harm has been committed, if I want to actually prevent this from happening Later, how do I prevent that? And that's by addressing this issue. What made this person do this? You know what I mean? How do we address those problems? And I think if people looked at the system less as, how do I punish this person? Justice is punishment. People look at justice as being punitive and punishing this person instead of, how do we prevent this from happening? How do I, how do I, how do, what could have changed if we had addressed something with this person, what would have prevented this thing from happening? That's what I want people to look more like, how do we address the root causes? Like, and I had this conversation with somebody recently about a friend who had been abusive towards his, his, his wife. And it was like, okay, so here's the thing. So he, he's been abusive. We know that now, right? That's the thing that's happening, right? I don't, I'm concerned about this woman. And I'm also concerned about other women, right? I don't want them to experience abuse again. And I don't want this woman to experience abuse again. But I know that this man is in the world doing this. So he already has some problems that exist that are leading him to do this. As his friend, how do I prevent this? And if I already know he's lashing out and he's violent, he has some issues that are unaddressed or whatever it is that's causing this, me being like, fuck you, go to hell, you're the worst person ever, da 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 da, da. that's not gonna do it. That's not what's gonna do it. So we need to go address my fucked up friend, you know what I mean, and be like, how do we get you help? What's wrong with you? How are you doing this? How do I prevent that from happening? Because that's what it does. Like, and, and it's not about being sympathetic to him. It's not about, you know, not championing this person. It's about how do I prevent this person from even having experienced this harm? And I think that is what I want people to do. That's amazing. It's been so awesome talking to you. I've learned so much. Um, where can our listeners find you and follow you? All social media at Miss O'Lurin. That's M-S-O-L-U-R-I-N, preferably Twitter. So find me there. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to Reply Guys. If you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Reply Guys, where we have a catalog of over 25 bonus interviews with renowned writers, journalists, and comedians, with an additional episode uploaded each week. The show is hosted by Kate Willett and me, Julia Clare. Our producer is Genevieve Garrity. Our theme song was performed by Emily Fremgen, who wrote the song with Kate Willett. Our artwork is by Adrian Lobel. If you want to find us on Twitter, we're at Kate Willett with two L's and two T's. And I'm at OJuliaTweets, OHJuliaTweets. And Twitter is where you can, of course, also find our reply guys. They are always with us.
Bernie, take us out. As I went walking that ribbon of highway, I saw above me that endless skyway. I saw below me that golden valley. This land was made for you and me. This land is your land. Your this land. land is your land.